Today's episode of the London Lyceum is part one of two with Dr. R.T. Mullins, the ever-controversial, I guess, depending on who you talk to, uh, scholar over in Scotland. Uh, He's a joy to talk to. Uh, He's probably one of the most fun people you'll talk to, so I think whether you agree with him or disagree with him on this episode, you're going to benefit from it. And if we want to be true to our goal in the podcast, we're trying to develop good thinking habits. Uh, And you can't do that unless you talk to people who you disagree with. So today's episode, we talk to him about God and time. First, we discuss what is time. I think that's something that is completely, um, I guess, under the radar or not really thought about, not known about when it comes to the topic of God and time. We don't think about what time actually is and its implications for God's relationship to it. And then we ask him, well, okay, if that's what time is and these are the options, how does God relate to time? He gives us his own interpretation. He denies timelessness. Uh, We affirm it. So I think it's a really interesting discussion talking about the key objections to timelessness, uh, why anyone would want to even affirm it or reject it, all those fun things. So I think you're really going to enjoy the episode. We'd love for you to drop some comments uh, on the Twitter or the Facebook page or wherever you do your social media-ing. We're happy to interact, and we'd love to hear your feedback and comments. But uh, with, without spoiling the episode, I do want you to tune in for the whole thing. It's a ton of fun. He is really, really fun to talk to, and I think you're going to enjoy it. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we, in an effort to get Baptists to think deeply and clearly about issues, we bring on awesome guests to talk to. And today, we are honored to have, really thrilled to have Dr. R.T. Mullins, the esteemed uh, philosopher, theologian uh, from over in the UK. So... I'm really excited for several reasons, honestly, to talk about talk to him today. Um, I think Brandon is too, who's with with me. I know um, I'm Jordan Stefanik, one of your hosts. Sometimes I forget to introduce myself. Um, yep, and I'm here too, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm really excited about Dr. Mullins for several reasons. First, I think he's wicked smart. Um, he sent me 12 pages of single space notes, so I don't think anyone else has done that ever, and I don't think anybody else will probably do it. So. That's proof in, proof right there that he's that he's uh, brilliant. And second, I think it's super. I'm super interested for a couple of reasons. I think uh, our show has a unique mixture of audiences who listen. Um, we have a couple different groups. It seems like we have some analytic theology guys. Um, I know it seems like JT Turner really likes our stuff, which I'm pumped about. Yeah. I feel I feel special when he likes our stuff, um, and a couple other people. And then I've got this really small group that are like coworkers and friends of me and Brandon that listen. So I think most of them know nothing about what we talk about. Uh, so it's really interesting. I come into work and a coworker who ha- has no clue about any of this comes and talks to me about it. So I think that's really fun and interesting. But one of the, I think, biggest segments we have are these confessional, uh, especially Baptist types mm-hmm. who on the internet are usually labeled 1689. Sure. And... I'm really interested for them, especially to hear this episode, these episodes that we're doing, um, because I think personally, I think a lot of them live in like an echo chamber. Fair enough. We all do. And they don't, I mean, it seems like whenever they're engaging the opposing or a differing argument in any way, it's usually them staring down the barrel of their gun to hunt heresies. Right. So... I think if you want to actually grow and understand, you have to actually be challenged and engage in serious critique and serious uh, give and take, uh, open yourself up to hear opposing views. So 
I think most people uh, who are in that group are probably going to disagree with how you define some of the stuff, which I'm pumped about. I want to learn from you on that and be challenged on that. So I'm really excited. But also, I think um, you're just fun to talk to and you have really good taste in music. So I, I do, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess before giving away everything, why don't you give us a quick, I don't know, 30 second introduction on who you are, uh, things that we should know about you. Sure. So, so like you said, I'm I'm a analytic a theologian. So I I'm from America, but I work in Scotland, uh, and I've been accused of a lot of things online. One of which, and in person as well. One of which was uh, atheism. I've been accused of being an atheist, which that was pretty funny. Uh, but uh, but despite those accusations, I, I'm actually an ordained minister in the Christian Church, like the Independent Christian Church in America. Uh, there aren't any such churches here in the UK. So sometimes when people ask like, "What are you ordained in?" and I tell them the Christian Church, they're like what kind of cult is that? You know, like, uh, and I'm like, it's not a cult. It's, it's, I swear it's a real thing. But um, so, yeah, so I, so I actually am an ordained minister. So it's not just like philosophical interest. I actually have an interest for, for things for the church. Uh, other things about me, I'm married to an Italian scientist and um, we spend a lot of our free time just going to heavy metal shows. So, yeah. yeah. I think that's awesome. <laughs> um, so today, I guess on this episode, we want to talk about God and time broadly. So I think this is a confusing topic for a lot of people. They don't really understand what's going on. They just say God is either timeless or not. So why don't we start just fundamentally, what is time so we can get a better understanding of if God, how God is related to it? Right. So this is one of the most like annoying questions for me within the philosophy of time, because very little attention has been paid to this question, like what is time? So most people just kind of ignore this question and they'll just quickly move on to topics like like the ontology of time or like how do we measure time, uh, like lots of different issues there. So, they, so what is time is just a question most people ignore. And in theology, it's the same thing. So in theology, they'll jump to this quote from Augustine where, where Augustine's like, what is time? I know what it is unless you ask me. Um, you know, and you're like, okay, cool. But then he never gets around to answering that question. And you're like, well, that's annoying. And so most theologians will just like quote that and then they move on to something else. And so hardly anyone will actually want to address this question, what is time? So the best you'll get is sometimes saying that like uh, time is like a relationship between events or instance. But this definition doesn't work because it presupposes some kind of notion of time uh, because it's assuming that like these events are temporal events. And actually the definition of events is usually something like this. Uh, an event is, you know, a substance having a property at a time. And you should be like, well, hang on a minute. You told me you were going to explain the existence of time in terms of these events, but now you're presupposing time. So you've given me a circular definition. So that's not, that's not great. So, so yeah, so like, this is a really annoying kind of area. You're like, I give me something to work with. So there's this guy in California named uh, Marcello uh, Oreste Fiocco. And he's been trying to actually work with this. Like he just starts out with saying like, this is annoying. All you philosophers of time, give me a definition. Why don't you do this? And so he's come up with one uh, and it goes a little something like this. So he says, first you need to do is you need to distinguish between moments of time and time itself. And a moment is something like this. A moment is the way things are, but they could be subsequently otherwise. So things are this way. And then if like a change takes place, then they're a different way. And so those are moments. And so what time is, according to Fiocco, he says time is a natured entity that makes change possible, is the source of moments, and then is the thing that kind of um, like unifies a series of moments. It explains why there's a particular timeline instead of just any other like, timeline. 
And I want to do this, I want to take this definition and try to use it for philosophical theology. Uh, and so the move is actually really crazy, um, but there's precedent for the crazy things that are about to come out of my mouth. <laughs> so just, yeah, so, so just know this. So within um, like the kind of the, towards the end of the Middle Ages and into the scientific revolution, uh, in the Christian tradition, Isaac Newton and Pierre Gassendi and Samuel Clark um, said that time can be identified with God, that time can be an attribute of God. And then weirdly enough, around the exact same time period, there are people within the Hindu tradition who are saying the exact same thing. Uh, I don't know like why that's the case, but yeah, you get a bunch of people towards the very end of the Middle Ages and right before, like through on the Renaissance and whatnot, saying we can take time and make it an attribute of God. So time is a substance, it's a natured entity, and part of its role is to make change possible. And so I can start teasing out this definition here. So I can say, well, God can be time in the sense that God's the thing that makes change possible. God's responsible for the existence of any given moment. And he's responsible for why there's a series of moments. And so in this sort of way, I can actually kind of give a definition of what time is. I haven't been able to publish this stuff yet. Uh, so this is all pretty new uh, material that I'm giving you right now. Awesome. Yeah. That, so with with that definition in mind, what thinking back through the, the history of the Christian church, what are some of the different views of of God and time that um, theologians have presented over the years? Right. So this is a tricky question because when you ask what is the relationship between God and time, typically people are asking timelessness or temporality, but you could ask a bunch of different kinds of questions there. So I could ask questions like, well, in what sense is God responsible for the existence of time? But nobody wants to ask, answer those questions um, other than myself. So I'll stick with the more generic kind of kind of issue. So the, the real issue is, is God timeless or is he temporal? And those are really your only two options there because they're mutually contradictory. Uh, so let me d define what it means to say that God is eternal, and then we can talk about how you interpret these, this eternality. Uh, is it going to be a timeless eternality? Is it going to be a temporal eternality? So to say that God is eternal just means that God exists without beginning and without end. And if you believe that God necessarily exists, then you get that for free. Because God necessarily exists means God has to exist. He cannot fail to exist. So you get without beginning, without end right there. So everybody can say, if you think God necessarily exists, because not everybody does that. There's a few weird people who, who deny that. But I'm happy to be like, God necessarily exists. And so you get eternality for free. But if you want this eternality to be timeless, you have to say God exists without beginning and without end. But you also have to add that God exists without succession and without temporal location. So he doesn't exist now. He doesn't exist then. He, doesn't, he will not exist. He just does exist. Full stop. That's what you have to say. If you want God to be temporal, you'll say God exists without beginning, without end, but you'll say God does have succession, or at least it's possible for God to have succession in this life. It is possible for God to do one thing after the next, after the next. And then you'd also say, because of that, God has temporal location. He exists now, or he exists then, or he exists, you know, and so on. So those are your options, either timeless or temporal, either without succession or with succession. Yeah, I guess unless you, doesn't William Lane Craig say something weird, like he's, Timeless, and then he is in time, and then he's temporal. It doesn't say and then because you then you would have God being timeless before he's temporal, right, okay. and so then that's incoherent because you've got there being <laughs> this temporal notion. And so Craig's like, no, 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 I don't want to say that. And we're like, okay, fine, tell me what you're saying. And he's like, well, look, uh, God's timeless sans creation, so like without creation, mm -hmm. but temporal okay. with creation. And when everybody else asks, okay, cool, but like, what does that mean? You don't get a lot more uh, from there. 
And so a lot of people just kind of, especially a lot of people who are really doing a lot of hard nose philosophy at time, they'll just look at me, just scratch their head and go, I, I just don't know. I, I like uh, my friend Natalia Ding. Uh, we've talked about this a bunch when she was writing her introduction to God and time. And she was like, you can't just put grammatical like, you know, marks around a word and just make that like, you know, somehow do something in philosophy. It doesn't work that way. And, and I'm like, yeah, Craig's great on all this other stuff. This one just this one spot just seems a bit odd. Yeah. And I think, you know, you were mentioning making time potentially like an attribute of God. Mm -hmm. I think John Frame, I don't know how familiar you are with him, says something along the lines of time being an attribute of God. Oh, gosh, it's been a while since I've read of him. The main thing I remember of Frame was that he said God's timeless, uh, but he's also like, you know, uh, temporal. But, he, you know, and he just kept going back and forth on these. And I, and I read several of his different books where he was making this statement. And I was like, you really are saying God is the timeless and simultaneously temporal like that's yeah. incoherent that can't so i so i didn't i kind of blocked out i guess whatever else he was saying uh, i think he does that quite a bit with a lot of things <laughs> he's got his qualities that, that that are good um just this one spot's not not right but yeah if, he's, if he does say that that's interesting um because I, there's a couple other people more contemporary who will say this so that makes me look as like i'm not completely nuts when i say this uh so tf torrance makes similar kind of claims and supposedly like maybe Carl Bart does, but I can never figure out what Bart's saying. Um, so if Bart says it, cool, but you know, I, I don't know. I'm not going to take the time to read all of that either. <laughs> so. you, you have a life, you have things to do, you know, like uh, we can't spend all our time reading through the church dogmatics and then trying to figure out the German context to understand what he's saying. You don't have time for that. <laughs> um, okay. So I guess now that we've kind of got a little bit of bearings on these two positions on mm -hmm. God in time, um, why is it that classical theists and others have typically promoted a timeless view of God? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of different arguments people will run. I'll just give you like one really common one. And so the idea is if you can establish that God is immutable, like or unchanging, then you get timelessness for free. So, so there's a couple different assumptions that are at play in, in an argument like this. And so the first uh, assumption is that change implies temporality. So if something's undergoing change, then you can say, well, it's definitely temporal. It's definitely in time. Whereas if it's changeless, then it's got to be timeless. And so this like actually predates Christianity. And then it plays, it's a major assumption throughout most of the Middle Ages. And so the idea is then if I can somehow get to the claim that God is immutable or unchanging, then I get God's timeless. So how do you get immutability? So that's, that's the big issue here. Okay. And so this brings me to this second assumption that's really big with, uh, again, that predates Christianity. It goes back at least to Plato, but it plays a major role in a lot of Christian thought. And so the assumption is this, uh, that all change is for the better or worse. So if something is changeless, it is perfect. If it's changing, it can't be perfect. Mm -hmm. And since we all want to say God's perfect, well, then well, we really need to say that God's changeless because the idea would be this, since all change is for the better or worse, well, if God changed, he'd either be getting better or worse. If he got better, well, then you really weren't that cool to begin with, right? Like if you're perfect, you're perfect. You know, you can't get better. Mm -hmm. uh, and in, and it couldn't be a change for the worse because if you're perfect, then well, you can't get worse because like, you know, what, what kind of perfection is that if you could get worse, you know? So, well, then it's got to be the case that God is, you know, just perfect full stop. And so unchanging full stop cannot change in any way, shape or form. And if you get that, then you get the claim that God is timeless because an unchanging being cannot have succession in its life. So that's, that's, that's a very common argument throughout the Christian mm -hmm. tradition. 
Yeah, that's really helpful to think about the different doctrines in relationship to one another. Hmm. So I guess this this kind of brings us to the the first really big question that's probably going to ruffle some feathers, but why would someone reject God as timeless? Right. So the, here's where I think there are loads of reasons to, to reject uh, God as timeless. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll just give you a couple here. So uh, the, the first one is like timelessness is not taught in the Bible. And you might think, well, hang on. There were a lot of really smart people over the years. Didn't someone notice this? You know, that it's not taught in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes, of course, they all noticed it. Uh, so like Louis Burkhoff, so not even going that far back. Um, uh, Louis Burkhoff, he's like, timelessness, ah, it's just not taught in the Bible. But for philosophical reasons, we have to affirm it. So he's really clear on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Sharnock, you know, he's a, he's a favorite uh, theologian amongst uh, lots of our, uh, you know, uh, reformed friends. And he says the same thing. He's like, why does God not teach uh, timelessness or immutability in the Bible? This really strong sense of immutability. He's like, because of the weakness of our minds. So the Holy Spirit just saw how weak our minds were, how weak our concepts were. So he decided to not reveal that part to himself. He explained himself in a way that we could understand. So basically, you're too dumb to understand timelessness. God knows that, so he's not going to tell you that he's timeless. Because but thankfully, some it. people have figured it out. Well, that's what I don't get. I'm like, Charlotte, you're really bright, and you figured out timelessness really well. Surely the Holy Spirit could have revealed it to you. But, you, yeah. know, you know, I don't know. Uh, so I'll mention just two more people who kind of who noticed this. So Augustine and Pseudo Dionysius. Um, but so if we go right like right into the Middle Ages, then they both noticed this that when I come to all my proof texts for timelessness, all the words for eternity, all the words describing God are all temporal terms. So I have to explain away that fact. And this is a standard prolegomena throughout the Middle Ages. So the biblical evidence is just not in its favor there. It's really not. Um, the Indian, when you come to like them, you might say, well, maybe, okay, maybe I can get the immutability from God. Cause like I said before, if you get immutability, you get timelessness for free. Well, the, there's, there are a lot of passages that talk about God not changing cause he's not a man, mm-hmm. but I mean, even people who are classical theists like Edward Waringa are going to say, look, when you look at the biblical passages, they don't give you the full doctrine of immutability because it specifies a really, really particular sense in which God does not change. He's not a liar. So when he makes a promise, he's going to keep it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not like you. Uh, um, when you say one thing and do another, God's going to be faithful to that. And that's what most biblical scholars, Old Testament scholars will say. They'll say, look, when we look at these immutability passages, it's really clear that there's only a really specific sense in which God does not change, especially given the backdrop of all these other passages that say that God does change, including passages in Hosea, where it says, because God is not a man, he does change. Uh, because you, you guys, you're horrible people. You're all stubborn. You know, if you get angry, you're just going to stay angry. God's not like that. Because God's not a stubborn man, he'll change. He'll change his plan of wrath to a plan of, of compassion. So you've got the biblical evidence, I think, just really is not in favor of timelessness. So that's a major, I think that's one major reason. Okay. Yeah. And I think it seems like when I read biblical, specific biblical scholars, that versus systematic theologians or mm-hmm. historical theologians, that right. divide definitely plays out. Um, it's, I would, I don't know how many biblical scholars I've read who do affirm a lot of the classical attributes, honestly. The ones that I can think of that do, they'll usually fudge on the definitions a lot. Um, and then some of the others, when I've asked, when I've been able to meet some of them in person uh, and ask them like, hang on. So in this one page in your book on Christology here, you said God's like timeless and everything. You gave me this really spatial metaphor for time. 
And that's that's just not what time is. Uh, and they'll quickly go, oh, yeah, I, don't, I just don't know what to talk about. I'm sorry. I'm out of my depths here on this one. And I'm like, that's okay, because I'm out of my depths yeah. with uh, New Testament Christology. So that's fine, yeah. you know? Uh, so we've all got our areas of specialty. So, so yeah, so, so I, think that's, okay. I think that's a problem in, in biblical studies. Yeah, they're just like, if they want to uh, affirm classical attributes, which is rare anymore these mm-hmm. days, they'll usually fudge the definition. So on this first one, I'm thinking about those the people who are listening who probably are like, yeah, I don't like that. Right. Um, uh, and I think their response to this is just going to be, well, pretty much every divine attribute is underdetermined by Scripture. So that doesn't really scare me so much. Right. So walk me through some other ones. Yeah. So here's another major argument against it. Let's call it the the problem of creation. So Christians typically affirm creation ex nihilo, that God created the universe out of nothing. And so the classical Christian tradition, they affirm that this entails that there's like a state of affairs where God exists without creation. And, and, and so you might ask, well, why did they think that? And here's the kind of argument you see from people like uh, St. Augustine, John to Damascus, and a bunch of others. They'll say, look, God exists without beginning. Because that's what we said, like part of what it means to be eternal, is that it, to be eternal means to exist without beginning. Well, nothing that begins to exist, nothing that is created could be co-eternal with God. Because anything that begins to exist could not be as old as God. That's that's kind of what you see in some of the early church fathers. You might want to put it in a different way. You'll say nothing that begins to exist could be co-eternal with a being who never begins to exist. So there has to be the state of affairs where God exists without the universe. And, and so, like I said, you see this in Augustine. You see this in John of Damascus. And then it plays a really big role when you get towards the end of the Middle Ages so with like John Duns Scotus and a lot of Calvinist doctrines. Uh, they really put a big emphasis on this to, to, to say like, look, this is how sovereign our God is. When God is, you know, making his, his plan of predestination, when he's coming up with his decrees, he alone exists. There's nothing else there to influence his thinking, nothing else there that could exert force on him. He alone is free and sovereign because nothing else exists. And so this is so a lot of like really pumped up rhetoric about this kind of uh, idea. Uh, and then another important role that this, this idea of God existing without the universe, uh, it plays a role in debates with uh, pantheists at different points in, in, in theological history. So the pantheists, a lot of times they want to say, well, God is identical to the universe. And so you'll see a bunch of different Christian theologians go, no, he can't be because the universe is not eternal and God is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the universe began to exist. God did not begin to exist. So it so this idea that God exists without creation, it, it's a, it plays a big role in a lot of different doctrines. So the doctrine of creation, uh, making sure you can distinguish between the creator and the creature, and you know uh, God's freedom, predestination, all this kind of stuff. So it's really important. And so that's all, all I've done so far is just told you that's just what the church has believed. Mm-hmm. Here's where things get bad, though. Here's where the problem is for timelessness. So you have, again, you've got God existing without the universe, and then the universe begins to exist. That looks like a really clear change in the life of God. You've got God existing with nothing and then God existing with stuff. You've got God not causally sustaining anything in existence and then God causally sustaining the entire universe in existence. And that looks like a really clear change in the life of God. And so it looks like you've got change, you've got succession, and then you don't have immutability, you don't have timelessness. So that's that's a pretty big problem. So if I deny change as a relational concept, can I avoid this problem? I don't know what it would mean for change to not be a relational I mean, not t- time, time, I mean. Oh, if I deny that time's yeah. a relational concept? That's what I mean. Well, that's fine, because then you get into the absolute theory, which is my theory. Uh, and so then, um, 
that's cool. Uh, so, uh, so you just have like God just being temporal because God just is time itself. That's awesome. Um, but here's one thing that I guess I should clear up though. Sometimes when people talk about like this relational theory of time versus absolute theory of time, um, they'll get confused in thinking that change has nothing to do with time on the absolute theory. And that's not accurate. So everybody in these debates agrees that if there is change, there is time because change is what marks a before and after change is what brings about new moments. So even if you think that time can exist without change, that doesn't mean you think that a series of moments could exist without change. So even if I want to deny that, you know, change is what makes time exist, then I'd still have this exact same problem with creation. It'd still be the case that there's a change in the life of God. And so I've got a succession of moments. So I guess as I'm thinking about this, it reminds me, I just read, I think TJ Mawson wrote mm -hmm. Divine Attributes, little mm -hmm. Ambridge element series. It's like 50 pages or something short. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he said something along the lines of, or he asked the question, is it logically possible for God to be timeless? And if that is logically possible, wouldn't it be better for him to have timelessness than it would be for him to be temporal? Right. Yeah. So he's got, it's a, it's a much more detailed argument he's got. I've actually got a paper uh, coming out on this. Um, so, so Tim, the argument is supposed to go like this. Uh, if God's not timeless, then you get this decrease in God's knowledge, goodness, and power. Mm -hmm. uh, and the assumption there is that um, if, if you're believe, if you believe that God's temporal or in time, then you're going to be an open theist. So you're already going to deny that God knows the future. Uh, and so you've already got the decrease in knowledge and then the, you get the decrease in power and goodness, uh, from this other area, which is I could really screw things up if I don't know the future. So I could intend to do some stuff. Uh, and then, you know, like it doesn't turn out the way I wanted it to, oh gosh, that's terrible. Uh, and so maybe I'm not as powerful as I thought. And then maybe I'm not as good as I thought because I really screwed up history. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where he's getting from there. What I think it, it would take a lot longer to explain this. I think what's doing all the work there is nothing to do with timelessness. It's actually the ontology of time that you adopt. So the ontology of time is this, what moments of time exist? And so the tr traditional view is called presentism, which is that the present is the only moment of time that exists. Mm -hmm. Whereas a more contemporary view is called eternalism, which is that past, present, and future, all moments of time exist. And that's the view that Mawson wants to affirm. He wants to say the entire temporal block all the moments of time just do exist they're all co-eternal with god so how does god know the future well, he just looks and sees it uh and i'm like well you can make god temporal and you get the same results if if i've got eternalism how does god know the future he just looks and sees it so there's no problem there uh and if some of your listeners if they're calvinist um then they don't even need that they could be presentists and say god's temporal how does god know the future well the calvinist answer is god knows the future because he causally determined it so I don't need any particular ontology of time for that. So nothing about timelessness is going to give me, you know, foreknowledge. Uh, in this case, if I'm a Calvinist, what gives me the foreknowledge is God causally determining, decreeing, this is how it's going to go. And well, then now I've got all the foreknowledge. I've got all the foreknowledge I want. So there's no diminishment in God's foreknowledge. Um, he's definitely, if you're a Calvinist God, you're definitely going to get what you want out of history. So there's no like worry about screwing things up. So there's no like drop in your power or drop in your goodness. So other things can do the work here. You don't need timelessness to do anything in this sort of argument. That's interesting. Yeah. So I mean, Brandon, what do you think? <laughs> I'm still processing over here, but um, 
I guess we can transition to this idea of of God being a prisoner of time. So I know mm-hmm. um, you've written about, and I was actually just starting to look over that article in response to Paul Helms' object, objection about um, the prisoner of time objection. So how would you respond? Well, you have responded already in your article, but how would you respond to that objection? Uh, right. Yeah, I have to change my response a bit, actually. Because when I wrote that article, I still was doing the really cheeky game that everybody else was, which is just refusing to tell you what time is. Um, so, so, I, so yeah, and I got away with it because everybody gets away with it. So I think what in order to make the prisoner of time objection against divine temporality, in order to make that objection have like some teeth to it, you need to tell me what time is. Because like the objection is like somehow like there's this thing that's like forcing itself on God, you know. Uh, and, and in that article that you're referring to, I, I have this statement of like, you know, like time is God's mom. Like it's telling him what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know how they let me publish that. I mean, like I don't know how they let me get away with that joke, but I love it. It made me happy. Um, so you got to tell me like what time is. And so on my view, with this crazy view that I'm, you know, working on now that, you know, other great crazy people like Isaac Newton held, uh, time is an attribute of God. It's an essential attribute of God. So to say like God's a prisoner of time is just to say it's, he's a prisoner of his own essence. And that can't be a problem because to say God's a prisoner of his own essence is just to be like, God can't do anything other than be God. And then you're like, oh, well, I'm sorry that on my doctrine of God can't do anything other than be God. So mm, that's a really serious problem. So, so it's not a problem in my view. Um, but maybe you could try to do something else here, though. Uh, maybe you could say, well, maybe it's not really what time is that's making it like so so difficult because, you know, on my theory, like it's just it's just no problem whatsoever because it's just an attribute of God. Maybe it's something about the ontology of time that's causing a problem here. So the way sometimes people try to tease this out, they'll say, look, if God's in time, if he's temporal, then he's going to lose moments of his past. Uh, and he has all these moments of the future that he doesn't, you know, he hasn't yet experienced. And then like, that's just bad. We can't have that for reasons that I've never been able to pin down, but that's bad apparently. So let's just take him and, and say like, okay, fine, maybe it's bad. I don't know. Why? So how do you get, how do, how's the response to, to go to this? Well, if you make God timeless, I guess you could say that God doesn't lose moments of his life because he doesn't have a series of moments. But if presentism is true, well, then it's still the case that all those past moments that God's being sovereign over, those are gone. They cease to exist. So there's still a sense in which you could say all the past moments that God ordained, those are gone. Um, maybe his life is not gone because he's just in one timeless moment, but the, the, all the other moments of the past, they're gone. And all the moments that God has ordained to come about, they haven't happened yet. So I don't really see what the advantage is here yet. And in order to kind of push even further on this, what a lot of contemporary people like Paul Helm, uh, what they do is they say, eternalism is what you need. That's the right story of the ontology of time you need in order for God to be timeless. And so let's look at this story for a little bit and see if if this objection then even makes any sense. So imagine all moments of time exist, like the eternalist wants to say. They're just there, co-eternal with God. Now, if God is timeless, well, then those moments don't cease to exist because that's just part of what it means for the uh, eternalist ontology of time is the moments just don't cease to exist. So if God's temporal and eternalism is true, well, then those past moments also just don't cease to exist. So if the problem is God would lose moments of his, of his life, well, that's just false on eternalism. So the very ontology of time that Paul Helm's adopting, if, if, if that's the real story of time, then make, if God's temporal, then, the, you know, then 
it's still not a problem because he can't lose his moments of his past moments because you've got the eternal block of time just does exist. So you've got to have certain assumptions about the nature of time uh, uh, up and running to build to get these arguments up and running. And, and all the different versions, I think they just kind of fall apart at different points. It seems like timeless is not really doing anything here. It's the ontology of time that's doing all the work. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably, I mean, I remember when I first started, uh, I guess, learning about the classical attributes and thinking about God as being timeless. Um, I had no concept whatsoever of the ontology of time at all. Oh, yeah. Um, so all of that peripheral debate that's going on underneath the surface had no idea. I just kind of was like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. God's timeless because it's better to have that than not to have that. Right. Uh, and kind of moved on with that naive, you know, I think, understanding. Um as we all did. I mean, that's, I mean, I did the same thing, you know, and then I look at these things, it's like a theory versus B theory of time. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I can't figure this out. That took me like a decade to figure out what they were saying and then realized they don't know what they're saying. And I was like, oh gosh, okay, this is, yeah. So it's just a waste of time. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's a difficult issue to get into. It really is. So your average seminary student walking in going, is God timeless or temporal? And then you look at all the, the mountain of research you have to do on the nature of time mm -hmm. just to figure that question out. Ooh. I don't know. Go do anything else. Like, I don't know. Like that's, that's a, that's a big task. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's probably just easiest to say, well, I already affirmed that God's God's immutable. And if that necessarily entails, he's timeless, then I'm done. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. So now I, I want to know from your, from your perspective, who do you think are the best people to go to for defending timelessness and the best people to go to for, I guess, critiquing it besides mm -hmm. yourself? Right. Besides myself. Right. Cause when you, when, when I, when I saw you wanted to ask this question, I was like, do I brag about myself? <laughs> Is there a way to like humbly flex that? I don't know. Um, yeah. So, uh, so, okay. So like the, I think in my opinion, the people who are doing the best job defending timelessness today is someone like Paul Helm. And Catherine Rogers. Uh, Catherine Rogers has done a great job at, at defending the view. Uh, so here's what I like about their views. They both really understand a lot of the underlying issues at play here, which is hard uh, because we've just talked a bit about how difficult it is to understand all the underlying metaphysical claims. And they're trying really hard to understand all the different like philosophy of time stuff going on underneath. They also understand the systematic connection between timelessness and a whole bunch of other different doctrines, be it different attributes of God, be it doctrines of providence and foreknowledge. They're, they understand the sort of systematic nature of these things in a way that a lot of other people don't. I really like that. Uh, and then I really also admire the fact that they do not want to play the mystery card. When they get a really serious objection to their view, they're going to sit down and think about it really hard, and they're going to try to figure out a way out of it. Or they're just going to bite the bullet and say, I know this looks implausible, but I'm going to affirm this, this, this particular entailment anyway. And I really like that because there's way too much uh, in theology. There's a lot of this where you just kind of go, I was talking about God. My language is perfectly adequate to describe God. Oh, he raised a serious objection to my view. Oh, man, you know, look, human language just breaks down. We can't talk about God at all. He's beyond us. And you're like, that's really convenient because you gave me a hundred page description of what God was like a minute ago. Like why Dallas and now you can't like, they don't do that. They don't play that game. And I yeah. really like that. Yeah. I, that's good. I, and I don't want to throw them under the bus completely here because we're going to have them on the show hopefully in a few months, but it does. One thing that irks me. Uh, and I think it irks me because Greg Welty first told me about it and it irked him was James Dolezal's uh, divine simplicity book. Mm -hmm. It seemed like, Anytime it came to a difficult problem, it was just, well, analogy solves the problem. Right. Our language is analogical. Therefore, uh, you know, we just can't 
come up with a solution to this. Right. And it seems really sloppy and convenient to me that that always comes up when it's a difficult problem for you. It, it is. Uh, and this is not a new thing in theology. I The day after uh, I graduated with my PhD, there was a conference on the Trinity. And I won't name uh, who the theologian was that was speaking, um, but a particular theologian gets up there and starts going about God is infinite. God is this. God is that. You know, huge descriptions. I wrote down 20 different things he said God was. Uh, and then he comes up with this like uh, this objection to his doctrine of the Trinity. And he's like, you know, um, God's just mysterious. We can't know anything about it, God at all. And so the Q&A comes around and I was like, you know, Professor so-and-so, because again, I don't want to say their name. I was like, so you said that you get out of this objection because God's unknowable. But you also told me God was infinite. God was, and I gave this nice, like, you know, list of all the things you said. I was like, I'm worried you know too much about this unknowable God, you know? Uh, and there was a big laugh in the back of the room. And then I realized, I was like, oh gosh, that came out a lot more snarky than I realized. Uh, and he never got it. And he's like, he's like, of course we know everything about God because he's revealed himself through Christ. And I was like, wait a minute. You told me he's unknowable. And now he's knowable again. I'm, you know, I don't know. I, I like, this is, this is a game and I don't know how you win the game. So let me, let me ask you about, about this idea of mystery. Cause that that's, this is something now that we've gotten into this, that it, you're right. It does get thrown around a lot. You know, it's sometimes, well, when it works in my favor, I'll, I'll throw it out, but you right. know, well, you can't use that, you know, as a response to me kind of thing. But and as I an like, analytic I'm fine with mystery, sometimes, I mean, I yeah, get well, that, that's really my question is, is, as an analytic theologian where, you know, we are trying to be very clear in the way we're presenting our arguments and we're not trying to uh, appeal to mystery and be vague and things like that. What, how do you find a place for mystery in, in your work? Um, and, and do you just say, do you have a, maybe a personal rule? I'm never going to appeal to mystery in writing or how do, how do you, how do you think mm -hmm. through that when you're actually trying to think through all these thorny issues? Yeah. So for me, I do have a personal rule of I will not appeal to mystery. Um, what I would prefer to say is I just don't know. Like if, if you ask me a hard question, I'll just go, Ooh, I don't know. Uh, let me think about it. Or yeah. that's beyond my ability. I don't know. I got nothing. I'm sorry. That's a problem for my view because I don't know. Whereas if I feel like if I'm, if I play the mystery card, I feel like my intellectual sins, uh, I'm actually blaming on the Holy spirit. You know, like, mm -hmm. um, like, I don't know if you've ever been at like a, like a church service, you know, where like somebody kind of gets up there and like, I had this sermon written out, but the, you know, the spirit was telling me to say this instead. And they get <laughs> a terrible, like garbage sermon. Like that's, I kind of feel like that's what's going on a lot of times in theology is instead of just going, I didn't write my sermon. I got nothing. I just saw yeah, yeah. um, I'll just blame it on the Holy God. spirit. And yeah. I'm like, I just don't want to do that. I just want to be like, look, if I don't know something, I'll just say, I don't know. I got nothing. I'm sorry. Um, instead of trying to wrap myself in the piety of like ineffable mystery, because I just don't know. There's just a lot of stuff. I just do not know. And that, that seems to me um, more honest than playing the mystery card whenever it's convenient. I like that. I think that's good. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, people who are listening to this, who might want to give me flack for saying, oh man, you're, you're being too nice to someone who def denies timelessness or something. I'm just like, well, you know, honestly, I just don't know something. There's tons of stuff I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, I, mean, yeah, I, I personally want to still defend it. Uh, and I want to find creative ways to do it, but I think I, I need to have my eyes open and be honest with the objections and the reality that there are, that's are actually existing out there. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, because the same thing happens. Like, so uh, Catherine Rogers, who I mentioned earlier, she was really helpful in reading over some of my uh, stuff that eventually went into my book. And one of the questions she asked me, she's like, how are you going to get God knowledge of the future if presentism is true? And you want, and, 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 you know, and you don't want to be a Calvinist. Because hmm. uh, if you want to be a Calvinist, then you've got an easy answer. God just decrees it. That's that. But if you don't want that, if you want like a libertarian, like kind of freedom, how are you going to get it? And I still, to this day, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I want to go like Molinism, but Molinism has some really serious objections. And I have no good answers to that, to those objections. And so I just have to humbly say, I got nothing. I'm sorry. Or you just become a Calvinist. I could go back to the, like the Calvinism of my teenage years, you know, it would give me a nice story. Um, but I've got free will problems there that I would have to go. God, I just don't know. Uh, but I, it, it, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Like, maybe someday, maybe someday. <laughs> so we've talked about timelessness this whole episode. We're going to do another episode uh, on divine simplicity, which I'm really, really interested in. I think that's going to be probably the hottest one. You know, one thing we don't really do hot takes on this show. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I see stuff on Twitter all the time that I'm like, man, if I did an episode on that, we'd probably have like 5 million listeners. Right. Uh, but we like out of principle, try to not do hot takes, but I think divine simplicity is pretty hot right now. For some reason um, it is. I don't know why. Yeah. It's crazy. So mm -hmm. we're going to get into that next episode, but, before we do, uh, can you, uh, for those people who aren't familiar with you, who want to stay up with you, who want to read your stuff, where's the best place to go? I know you've got a podcast and I, mm -hmm. I think we've, uh, shouted out before. We'll do it again. Uh, sure. Yeah. What else, what else do you do that people can connect with you on? Yeah. So the, the podcast is the reluctant theologian, uh, podcast. Um, and then my website is just rtmullins.com. So it's just my name. Uh, I would try to make it as easy as possible to find, find my stuff. Uh, so yeah, I try to. I try to put up all the papers that I publish uh, when I can get the rights to put it online. I'll try, I try to do that. So soon I'm going to be putting up a bunch more stuff. Um, but yeah, I've got most of my papers uh, on, on rtmullins.com. Awesome. And that's one thing I like about your writing is I can actually follow it and understand. I try. My rule of thumb is when I was a youth minister, you know, I was teaching like, uh, like teenagers and stuff. I was like, if I can explain it to a teenager, then I understand the issue well enough. If I can't, then I have to do more research and more study. And so that's what I try to do with my writing sometimes, too, is like, could I explain this to my teenagers? If not, I, you know, I, I don't have this right yet. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I want to say uh, thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode on whether God's timeless or not. Um, I'm sure you've got thoughts and comments, so go ahead and throw them out to us on Twitter. Uh, I know Ryan's on Twitter, so you can uh, tag him there, too, and put him in an endless thread. Mm -hmm. If Corby Amos is listening, which I think he is, um, you know, he's a professional at having thousand-long Twitter threads, so you're welcome to join in on that. Um, maybe that will determine if it's eternally long-lasting or not or something. There we go. Oh, moving on. Um, <laughs> You've been listening to the only Baptist analytic confessional podcast that exists. Uh, and uh, we encourage you to check in uh, with our next episode with our awesome guest, Dr. Mullins. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.